0: Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie anything. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I'm your host, licensed married and family therapist, Katie Morton. I'm so glad that you're here. Today, I think we have nine questions, eight questions. And if you are new, I ask for these questions on Sundays over on my podcast channel. So if you're watching this on YouTube, you're already there. Just go to the community tab over there on Sundays and ask your questions. And I pick the top, you know, the like 80% of these are the ones, with the most thumbs ups. And then the last one or two are just randomly selected. Okay. Without further ado, let's jump to that first question. This first question says, Hey, Katie, why do I think that I'm a bad person? And how do I stop hating myself? Whenever anything remotely bad happens or I inconvenience, quote unquote, inconvenience someone, the slightest bit, for example, taking a doctor's time during my appointment, interesting, telling my boss I can't come into work because I'm sick or someone giving me a gift, someone holding a door open for me, my brain starts the mantra of you're a bad person and you should kill yourself. It's frustrating and a little scary. Or if something embarrassing happens, my brain will just repeat, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you. I've tried to use some CBT techniques to talk back to the voice, but it's such a constant battle that I get tired after a day and I give up. My brain comes up with so many reasons to support why I'm a bad person, and it's hard to combat. I think I've hated myself for a long time and have always felt unworthy of friends or and opportunities. Recently, it's gotten so bad that I started cutting as a way to punish myself and to, dis- and to distract from the negative thoughts. Where do these feelings and mantras come from and how can I stop them? Okay. I have a lot of thoughts. And my first, and maybe surprisingly, maybe not, is I think you've been traumatized in the past. And the reason that I say that, and this will kind of maybe give you some insight into a therapist perspective, is when I hear you essentially talk shit to yourself, but this is like pretty intense, right? I would normally, maybe if it was kind of the conversation of like, you're never going to be good at that, like the self-doubting types of thoughts. I might say, oh, you could use bridge statements or, oh, we need to check our facts. I might utilize some CBT slash DBT techniques. However, these are pretty deeply rooted. These aren't just performance-based conversations we're having with ourselves. This is, I'm like, something's wrong with me. These feel like shame filled. Like, I hate you. I hate you. You're a bad person. You should kill yourself. All of those phrases seem rooted in something deeper than negative self-talk. Yes, this is negative self-talk. However, I believe it comes out of trauma. So part of me feels like you've either been, you know, sexually, physically, or emotionally abused or neglected as a child. And that's why there are these deeply in like CBT and DBT, we talk about like firmly held beliefs and these false beliefs about ourselves, right? They're like, they're deep down. They usually are something to the effect of, um, I'm never going to be enough, or no one's ever going to love me, or um, you know I'm just a bad person. And yours might be I'm I'm a bad person. No one's going to you know might be all of those things. But this difficulty with taking a doctor's time during an appointment, telling your boss you can't come to work because you're sick, like all of the basic ways of having a, I don't know, not even I want to call it healthy boundaries, but just having a regular life seem to in your mind you have said that, that equates to you inconveniencing someone else. And that just feels like an, a, a trauma response. Meaning I think you're you feeling like you're quote unquote inconveniencing people is like a fawning response We're like an extreme people pleaser. And if you don't know what I'm talking about when I talk about fawn, we have this stress response, which when our body feels like it's under threat, it goes into fight, flight, which we hear about all the time, but it also can go into freeze or fawn. And freezing is when we like dissociate and we kind of like play dead. And essentially that's something that we can do because we don't have the opportunity to fight back or run away. And so um, so instead we just freeze. And I think that, you know, that happens when we're younger, because we don't have the wherewithal to do it. But if those don't work, or even in conjunction with those, we can fawn, which is like when we extremely people please in order to hopefully stop someone from abusing us. And so we do things to like walk on eggshells so that they don't hurt us again. Right. That's what this feels like to me. Like the fact that you feel like you're inconveniencing someone, you know, because they hold the door open for you, which is something they've decided to do. Someone's given you a gift because they care about you. Again, something they decided to do taking your doctor's time during an appointment, that's their job. You know, there's these things that like technically aren't inconveniences, but for some reason you feel like you are an inconvenience and you don't want to upset them. Hmm. So anyways, that's why I feel like this is born out of a trauma response, which leads me to what my advice for you to kind of stop them or to get out of this is to start doing work on that and to find a trauma therapist. Now this could be someone who does EMDR, somatic experiencing, um, basic talk therapy, talking through traumas. This could be schema based therapy or what we call a kind of parts work. Um, There's a ton of different treatment modalities, but if you're going to, if you don't have a therapist currently and you're going to go see someone, make sure you let them know, hey, I think, you know, I have some trauma in my past that's maybe repressed and I'm struggling with these, what we would call therapist speak. These would be like a negative self narratives, meaning like negative negatively skewed stories about ourselves, right? That you're not good enough. You can't take up up time. You're a bad person. You don't deserve to be here. Like those are all just negative stories about yourself. I think based on past trauma and could, again, could be physical, sexual, could be emotional abuse, could be emotional neglect, could be any of those things. And yeah, I know that's probably not the answer you were expecting, but I believe that's the only way we combat this because bridge statements aren't going to be enough here. You, you, this is like a deeply rooted false belief. Okay, now there was a comment on this says, "Hey Katie, just in case you're going to say to use bridge statements here, which I didn't, but I could have, you know. What if bridge statements usually become something like, maybe I'm not taking up too much space, maybe I'm not a bad person, but maybe I am." And maybe self harm is okay for me. What starts off as bridge statements often leads into downwards, uh, downward spiral like this. I think that's because these are trauma based responses. Now, yes, those bridge statements can assist us while we're also doing the trauma work, but on their own, they're not going to be enough because it's almost like um, somebody gave a good example is on a different, it was a comment below a different question. But they said, I feel like I'm trying to soak up the Pacific Ocean with a single tampon. And I know that sounds maybe gross to some of you or overwhelming, but sometimes I think it's like, um, that's what bridge statements would be like. It's like they can help a little bit, but there's still so much left for it, to, for us to process and manage and bridge statements aren't going to cut it. Another analogy, if you don't like that one, could be, it. Um, it's like fixing a broken leg with, uh, with a Band-Aid, you know? Sure, it might help with that little cut where the bone is coming through or something, but it's not going to actually fix the problem. And so that's why bridge statements can help, but they're not enough. So I'd encourage you to do the deeper work in therapy. Okay. Now, another person said, in my case, I'm afraid to be a bother to people. I ruminate a lot about past events and how I should have handled it differently. My negative self-talk takes over and I feel so stupid for what I should shouldn't have done or said. Sometimes I become overwhelmed with negative emotions that hurt me deeply. Again, I think these are all coming out of our trauma response. and it's probably my fault for not mentioning the limitations to things like bridge statements or positive self-talk as a whole. It's just one tool. and it's not going to heal us from trauma we've sustained. It's not going to stop the, you know, those deeply rooted beliefs from re-emerging. But it can assist us along the way while we do the deeper work. So, when it comes to trauma therapy, we should be putting together, you know, a trauma timeline, which is a question about that later, I'll get into. Um, but putting together a trauma timeline, trying to fill in spaces about th- things that maybe we only partially remember, um, you know, it, trying to get back in touch with a younger us. All the while, while doing that deeper work, we try to utilize bridge statements to manage any of those kind of negative self-talk mantras or old stories to that want to reemerge to stop them from taking over and also to allow us to get through our days. But that's just one tool of many, right? We might also distract By going for walks, with our our petting an animal, cleaning our home, we might want to journal, reach out to a friend. Like, there's going to be a lot of different things that we're trying to do. We might also be doing some somatic stuff, like doing full body shakes or taking warm baths. You know, there can be different things that we're doing as well as that, because it's just essentially one tool in our toolbox, and we don't want to. Like a good example would be: I'm not going to show up to a job site where I'm meant to build something and only have a hammer, right? That'll get me. A little ways in there, but what if I need a screwdriver? Like, well, then I'm fucked. I don't have it. Right. And so that's kind of when it comes to therapy. We can have bridge statements. It's one tool, that's our hammer, but we're also going to need, you know, a drill and screwdriver and I don't know, a level and I don't know, all sorts of things. A saw is all. So I hope that that helps. I know it's hard, but finding the right therapist and just starting on that path, trusting when I tell you that it will feel better. Okay. Let's move on to question number two. This question says, hi, Katie, could you talk about how childhood trauma and PTSD can affect brain structure and function? There's some other comments on this. Um, But really, okay, really short for the best, because I'm not a neurologist. And if you want a deeper dive into this, I would encourage you to go to PubMed or even Google Scholar and just put in those keywords, be like childhood trauma, and brain structure or function, and you'll get a more in-depth explanation of how this affects the brain, okay? Now, studies have shown that people who suffer from PTSD, especially from a young age, there are three parts of the brain that are affected. There's the amygdala, which I've talked about before, and I'll talk about that a little bit in a second, hippocampus, and prefrontal cortex. And again, this is just my understanding. There could be a deeper, more you know, in-depth studies about this. Let's start with the amygdala. Now the amygdala is part of our limbic system, which is in control of our stress response, that fight, flight, freeze, or fawn that we were talking about. The amygdala is that fire alarm that like sounds the alarm that there's a threat, right? Because our nervous system is always keyed up looking in our environment for anything that could be threatening to our physical or emotional safety. When it thinks something is a threat it sounds the alarm and the amygdala takes over and it pulls our prefrontal cortex offline. So when we're under threat over and over and over, it will become enlarged and become more vulnerable to being triggered, meaning that a smaller amount of a quote unquote threat can cause it to do its thing, right? To sound the alarm, shut down our prefrontal cortex and go into fight, flight, freeze or fawn. okay? So people who have been repeatedly, injured or traumatized can have an enlarged amygdala and an overactive one at that, okay? So that's one way. The second, like I said, the prefrontal cortex, it is... um the thing in our brain, the part of our brain responsible for like organized thought, like planning preparation, preparation, um, also putting together like full and complete sentences that build on one another. When we're in fight, flight, freeze, or fawn, that part of our brain just isn't important, right? It doesn't really matter if we can be organized. We need to get to safety. If you think about, if you just stop thinking about trauma and think about threat, like think of us as cave people and a bear is after us, I don't need to put together organized thought, right? I don't need to put together beautiful sentences that make sense or be able to plan for the future. Right now, I just need to get to safety, right? And so it goes into like primal instinct. And so that prefrontal cortex can thin over time if we find ourselves traumatized over and over, essentially because it's not being utilized. And, um, the, the parts of it that need to function. Essentially, the, the limbic system and amygdala is like taking over more space and the prefrontal cortex isn't being used as much. And so it, it thins. Now, why exactly that happens? Again, I'm not a neurologist. I'm sure you can read up on it and find out more. We just find that in brains that have been traumatized for a long period of time. Okay. Now, the third component is the hippocampus. And the hippocampus is is it, they they hypothesize and they believe that it is where a lot of our memories from trauma are stored. Now, I wrote about this in my book, Traumatized. I did a ton of research about the brain and trauma to help not only myself better understand it, but then help you better understand it. Um, but they trauma memories, they believe, are stored differently than regular, regular memories. And so for people who've suffered from PTSD for a long time, the volume of their hippocampus can be smaller than others. And that's why it can often mean that it's harder for us to recall memories from trauma. Now, again, why it's smaller, I don't know. I would have assumed based on, you know, like the amygdala gets larger because it's overworked. I would assume if the hippocampus is involved in that trauma memory thing that it would get larger, but they find that it's actually smaller. And so it makes it hard for us to recall or we can... um, recalls specific memories with like a lot of detail and others with none. And so it just affects our memory as a whole. Okay. So we have amygdala, prefrontal cortex, and hippocampus. And also, I don't think I said this, but I mentioned it briefly, but the amygdala, because it's triggered and overactive, it can make it hard for us to sleep. We can feel chronically stressed or burned out. Um, We can have a really difficult time regulating our emotions. And that that regulation of emotions not only triggers is because of the amygdala, but it's also the prefrontal cortex again, because the part of the prefrontal cortex's job is to be more rational. It's like the adult part of our brain. So that's really in a nutshell, um, how trauma affects our brain. And obviously everyone's going to be different, but those are the three parts of the brain that we know we can actually see differences and changes in. Okay. When it comes to PTSD. Now, there was a comment that said, can trauma also result in other mental health disorders? Of course, like anxiety disorders, eating disorders, instead of PTSD. Um, the instead of is tricky. I usually find that patients who have, because yes, trauma can lead to other mental health or mental illnesses, things like eating disorders, a borderline personality disorder, even narcissistic personality disorder, a lot of times is born out of trauma, not always, but often. Um, anxiety disorders depression uh the OCD the type self in uh, non-suicidal self-injury there's a ton of mental illnesses that can come out of trauma now usually my patients that have eating disorders or non-suicidal self-injury or anxiety disorders also have PTSD and This is just a further, uh, not explanation, but a, a further expression of it. Now, you could potentially, I guess, because everybody's different, right? You could have one instead of PTSD, but that would mean that you don't have, I just don't, my, my therapist brain's like, no, that doesn't quite make sense. Because if you think of the symptoms of PTSD, it's like avoidance of the things that already feel scary or overwhelming or things that were traumatizing hypervigilance, which is kind of part of that. Um, And then you can get into the symptoms of like anxiety and depression. Um, We can have irritability, difficulty regulating emotions. There can be a lot of things that can come along with our PTSD. And it's my belief that it's out of all of those symptoms that then these other things are born. Because if we don't treat the PTSD, that's when other things can come up. Like eating disorders, for instance, which is, if you don't know, is my specialty. Eating disorders are kind of like when we have all those symptoms of PTSD happening, it's our way of coping because we don't have any other way to deal. And so we use eating disorders or addiction, self-injury. We'll use that as kind of like a, a, just a way to try to manage all that's coming up for us because we don't really have any other ways to cope that are healthy and helpful. We just do our best, right? And so that's why I believe those happen. But like I said, I'm not the end all be all. I don't know everything. I'm sure there's someone out there who doesn't have any symptoms of PTSD, has been traumatized maybe, um, but it didn't develop into PTSD and instead has an anxiety disorder. I'm sure that that can exist, but it's just not something that I've personally seen. And it, it kind of goes against the way that I believe these things happen. Okay. Now, someone else said to add to this, can you talk about how childhood trauma can affect the parents of the child? I have a cousin who survived an attempted kidnapping when she was about six or seven years old, and I remember her seeming like she'd handled it well, and I don't think she was actually affected by it much, other than possibly becoming more socially anxious, but I've noticed that my aunt seems to always be hyper-focused and overly concerned about her, even though my cousin is now well into adulthood and is capable of taking care of herself. Could this be a trauma response? Yes. And if so, how can my aunt who wasn't even present during the event be so affected by it while the person who actually experienced it firsthand is completely fine? The thing that we often forget when it comes to PTSD and trauma is that it can happen to us or someone that we care about deeply. That's all that matters. It doesn't actually matter if it happened to us. If we witnessed it or knew something happened, we can be traumatized through that. Now, because it's her daughter no one i mean of course your aunt was traumatized because she feared for the safety of her own child and again it's just that fear it's that it's the 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 worry that something's going to happen to ourselves or someone we love and in this case it was the fear that her daughter was going to be kidnapped or killed or who knows what right her brain could have gone in a million different directions now the reason that the the daughter might be okay i don't know if she got therapeutic help but Being six or seven and having something like an attempted kidnapping, but she was okay. She might've been able in her brain to process through that short situation and recognize that, you know, um, but I got away and I'm okay and kind of process it through on her own. Um, I don't know exactly what took place or what her process was, but she might've been able to talk it out with friends. If it was a big deal in the community, then oftentimes we're asked about something a lot. And we, in essence, are processing it through the same way we wouldn't talk therapy. And that might've been enough for her. Um, but being socially anxious, then I might, you know, hypothesize that she probably could have utilized therapy more and wouldn't have that as a, you know, if that is part of, you know, was exacerbated or created by the trauma or by the attempted kidnapping. Um, but either way, yes, your aunt can be traumatized. And I also just want to throw in there that, we can be in the same exact situation I talk about this in my book traumatized about siblings how like me and my brother could have grown up in the same abusive household he turned out one way I turned out another and people are like, why is that why am I like an addict and struggling so hard and my sibling is like super successful now there's a lot of different coping skills that we could talk about but there's also just different levels of resilience meaning that maybe that your um you know your cousin that this child had a bunch of opportunities to talk about it, I had friends and family checking in on her, but no one checked in on the mom or the mom didn't have as much resilience or didn't have as much support or resources. And therefore we can go through the same events and one of us can come out traumatized and the other one not. And it's, it's frankly just down to our ability to weather things like that and have other resources and ways to cope. Does that make sense? I hope so. Okay. Let's move on to question number three says, hey, Katie, I have a really hard time opening up to other people and accepting help. I've worked through old memories and realized I didn't get proper emotional care as a child. I was mostly ignored and left alone with all emotional struggles that I faced growing up. As a result, I now don't feel worthy to be considered with my emotions. Today, I am in a way better spot in my life. I have two friends who just do so much for me, yet I feel like a burden to them. Often I don't manage to open up when I need them, and when I notice the smallest hint that my friends might not have the energy to deal with my problems, I feel terrible forever thinking that I was deserving of attention. So my question is pretty straightforward. How can I learn and improve on working together with my friends? I have a tendency to isolate. Um, I would much rather have a stronger, a stronger relationship to support me, but often isolating seems like the easier alternative what can I do instead when I feel like isolating? Great question. To be truthful, again, I'm going to push for therapy because friends, yes, friends are amazing. I'm glad you have these two friends that do a lot for you and you feel like they could be these resources and these kind of places you can go to, I guess, safe harbors is what the word I'm looking for. Somewhere you can go to like recoup and feel supported and cared for. However, this emotional neglect that you sustained as a child hasn't fully been processed. And so it's still affecting your current relationships when you're wanting to isolate. And so I feel like there's probably still more processing that needs to be done. Now, when we talk about past trauma, we can talk it through with a therapist. Like I mentioned earlier, there's all those different modalities from EMDR to schema, somatic, all those things. There's also inner child work. I hosted a live inner child workshop um, last month and we talked about the importance of getting in touch with younger us and offering up to him or her the things that we didn't get when we were that age. And so part of that work could be helpful for you. Um, in my workshop, I have a ton of resources, uh, books that you know are helpful for children to read, that we could read as adults. There's actually a workbook where she has you, um, I believe it's called Recovering Your Inner Child or something like that. But anyways, it's in the list of resources that I offered at the end of the workshop and Part of what she has people do is write in your dominant hand as the adult back to younger you. So for me, I'm left-handed. So I'd write with my left hand as adult me back to younger Katie. Then younger Katie would write with the non-dominant hand. So for me, it'd be my right hand. For a lot of you, it'd probably be your left hand. But you write back because it doesn't, because it almost looks childlike and you can have conversations with your younger self because I feel like there's something in here where you're still acting out. Of that scared, non supported, emotionally neglected child of you. And that's affecting your current relationship. So we kind of have to go back to how we felt as a child and be able to offer up to her some things that might be, she might still be needing, things she might need to hear, um, support she might need to get. You know, there can be a lot of different things. And so overall, I feel like we can all benefit from this inner child work, but especially if we have any abuse in our past. And I think that that in essence will help you heal that old wound so that you stop acting out of it so that younger you knows it's okay and it'll get better. And older you now can then, instead of isolating and shutting down because that's essentially you doing what you could only, the only thing you could really do as a kid, just deal with it on your own. Instead of you reverting back to that old pattern of behavior you'll be able to reach out instead and know that when you reach out that people will be there. Does that make sense? I hope so. And if even if you can't afford to access my inner child workshop, I encourage you to get onto Amazon or wherever you buy books and just search inner child work uh workbooks, inner child um and it will come up and there'll be a ton of options. And I really encourage you to, to check that out. Also, you can go to my Amazon store because all the books that I use in the Inner Child Workshop are listed in there. So you can go to amazon.com forward slash shop forward slash Katie Morton. It'll all be there. Now there was a comment that said, Yes to this, and as an add-on, Katie, what are your thoughts for the people who truly just cannot open up and trust others at all? I've been in therapy for over a year and a half now, and I just cannot ever imagine interacting with difficult topics due to hyper-independence and strong trauma history. I trust my therapist enough to continue treatment, but I have a shutdown response anytime she ever gets too close, and I can even come across as combative at times, even though I truly don't mean to do so. On top of that, I have a tendency to lie and downplay certain details to appear better. Is it pointless to continue therapy? I'm trying to not be a difficult client. I just feel like my mind is combating any possibility to ever heal. You're not alone. This is very common. And part of me encourages you instead of so there's a couple of thoughts. So my first is instead of trying to head on fix this, like I need to open up and you talk about things. What if in therapy, we talked about our struggles to do this, to open up and trust people? What if we told our therapists that we have a tough time letting them get close? We find ourselves wanting to shut down. What if we went that route? Because sometimes in the discussing of the issue instead of, it's like the issue we're having in therapy instead of the real issue. Does that make sense? if we can focus in on that, we can actually get farther. So that would be one of the ways that I would try first. My second thought is maybe we should do some work on our own. Like I talked about the inner child workshop that I offered. I would encourage you to check out stuff like that. Doesn't have to be mine, but just grabbing one of the workbooks that I recommend or um, doing some journaling on your own because part of this shutdown response is you just feeling triggered. And so we kind of need to get to know ourselves better. So part of what I would want you to work on is obviously that inner child stuff, but also just paying attention to the things that you feel before you shut down. So last time we're in therapy and we find ourselves just like powering down, shutting down, pushing back, can we instead consider, okay, back from that, like five minutes or one minute or whatever, where did it feel Where do we feel it happen in our bodies? Because we have this hyper independence and strong trauma history. So my my belief would be that either our therapist says something or does something, or we just feel something that causes this to happen. It might be a combination of all these things. But I might find that I clench my fists, or I find myself swallowing. deep. I find when I personally have like overwhelming emotions, I swallow a lot. I don't know. I'm just throwing some stuff out there. I might feel my toes curl. I might start to sweat. I might feel cold, right? Like notice if you can, I don't know if you can even be in your body because the trauma history can sometimes make our bodies really uncomfortable, but just try to consider maybe the thoughts that we have. Do we have thoughts of, she's just going to leave me. She never really cares. This is going to end. This is going to be terrible. I'm going to, she's going to get to know me and want to run away. I don't know. If we can pay attention to what happens in our brain, bodies, or both before the shutdown, then we can combat it. We can actually have helpful tools, meaning that instead of doing this shutdown and going into this pattern of behavior from from childhood, maybe instead I say to, to my therapist, oh, I need to pause for a minute. I feel, I feel it happening, right? We've already talked to them about this. Can we change the subject? And we lighten the mood and talk about something different. And then we're able to stay present. We could also utilize grounding techniques that can prevent us from shutting down. And that could be like a pause. And we look around the room to count colors, right? How many things in the room are blue, brown, black, et cetera. Or we do the ABCs, things look for things in the room that start with a letter A, the letter B, the letter C, right? We could also go splash some cold water in our face and come back. Um, fidget toys, uh, silly putty. There's a lot of different things that we can utilize to keep ourselves present, but we're going to have to track it and notice when it's happening before we're there. And so the past times we've shut down can be really helpful in helping us learn about our response. Does that make sense? I hope so. And that can prevent us from shutting down and like never letting someone in. Because essentially your brain, like I talked about before, when someone asked what happens in our brain when we've been traumatized, like multiple times in childhood, our amygdala is extra active. It's large. It's always looking for a threat and it thinks threat is everywhere. And because of the trauma, anything that reminds us remotely of that trauma, shut down. Or if we shut down last time when that that thing happened, we're like, oh, that's not safe. So we do it again. And so our world just starts to get smaller and smaller. And the only way to open it back up is to understand it and then slowly expose ourselves a little bit to those things while we use our resources. So essentially, it's like we don't have enough resources. And that's why the grounding techniques. Um, I have a whole video. You can just look up 25 coping skills, Katie Morton on YouTube. It'll come up, but we can use some of those coping skills as well. We're just building up our, you know, they call that window of tolerance or that level of resilience. It's really just two phrases for the same thing. It's our ability to weather life's life's storms. And when things happen, we just shut down and we want to stop that from continuing. So we're gonna to have to use other tools to get us there. Okay. I hope that makes sense. Um also just know this is so, so incredibly common happens all the time. Any therapist worth their salt is going to be able to help you manage it. I can't tell you the number of times I've had patients who don't want to open up and shut down. It's just, it's so common. So we'll get you there. Okay. Let's move on to question number four. And this question says, hi, Katie, I was at your inner child workshop and it was very helpful. Yay. That makes me feel good. I want to create a trauma timeline like you suggested, but I'm wondering if you happen to have any visuals for what a trauma timeline could look like. I'm a visual learner and I'm having trouble figuring out how to create one. And I think seeing some visual examples would really help. Thank you. Okay. So I went and got a piece of paper for you because it's very simple. We draw a line. If you're just listening, it's just a horizontal line across a piece of paper. And I just put two little bookends on it, but you don't even have to do that, like two vertical lines at the end of that horizontal line. Now, as we try to put this together, which I know can be difficult, right? We might not be like, oh, when I was eight, this thing happened, but we might think to ourselves, I don't have any memory of this chunk. I want you to write that down. So if I was doing a trauma timeline, it's kind of tricky here with the microphone, but If I don't have any memory from six to nine, I'm going to look into my little, this is like my lifeline. So this would be me being born at one end and me today at the other end. And at the beginning, let's say six to nine, no memories. So I'm just going to move up here and I'm just going to put a little little squiggly between two lines. It says six to nine, no memory. And I have horrible penmanship, but I'm going to show you I just put a little squiggle. This I don't have any memory of, okay? And I'm going to build off of that. So if I don't have any memory from the ages of six to nine, what, what is the memory that I have? How do I know I have no memory at that time? Is it because people have talked about things during that? What are those things people have talked about? I can put lines again in between that no memory and write below or above whatever feels good, what I've been told. And I want you to know that this trauma timeline is like a living, breathing document. So we can edit it. You can do it in pencil. You can do it in pen or marker. You can make 5,000 of them. As many, like, because things are going to come up. And as you do this, you're going to remember little bits more and more. Or just stories people have told you. Like, oh, let's say six to nine, I have no memory. But I know at age 10, I went to Disney World or something. So then I'd put in here and I just put Disney World. I put 10 years old and I put Disney right? And then that would be added into my timeline. So I just have this this line and I'm just making little markers along it as I remember, or if I have stories I've been told or photos I've seen, home videos, things like that. We're just slowly filling it in. And I know you're like, but it's a trauma timeline. Why are you putting Disney World in there? Because that's a marker. So don't feel like you can only put your traumas onto your trauma timeline. Sometimes we need like historical markers. Like, oh, I remember starting high school. Okay. Well, let's mark that in there. How old were you? Were you 15? Okay. Let's write that down. You know, making these markers, it helps us slowly, like almost trigger some of those memories because we're going. So if I remember Disney world, then I'm like, Hmm. Okay. Well, that was my first plane ride. I'm just making stuff up. You guys, I'm 10 years old. So that would make my brother, you know, We start to piece things together. And if I was 10, that means that, you know, I was in elementary school or whatever. However, it worked for you, however, you know, you can piece it together, we want to slowly fill it in with as many things as we can remember that are helpful when it comes to thinking of the traumas. Now we don't have to remember the traumas exactly. Like I said, we can just be like, I have no memory from six to nine. Well, do you remember anything before age six? Like what's the six to nine? And that's what I would ask you if you were my patient. I'd be like, okay, so let's start around the age of six. You're saying you don't have any memory. Do you have memory of like being really little? Like one of my patients said that she recalls for something, this we don't usually have any long-term memory form before the age of five, just FYI. But sometimes, especially if things are traumatizing or we had like a big move or our parents got divorced, something happened when we were, you know, four, three, we can have these vivid memories. Like she remembers pulling herself up on this like very seventies colored couch, pulling herself up and seeing her dad smoking a cigarette sitting on the couch. And it's just this little blip of a memory, but I would put that in here. Why do we remember that? We don't know, but it's there okay? We don't have to have any context. We don't have to know that much about it. We're just, just trying our best to fill it in. And by doing this, we can often recall more than we actually thought we could at the beginning. And having it kind of be this not an actual written thing on paper makes it really hard to recall. And so having this it is incredibly helpful. And every therapist, like if I do put these together with my clients, I always give them a copy and tell them some of their homework is sometimes I like to fill in little bits like you know your age is 12 to 16 if you can come up with any memory in that time clothes you wore friends you had things you did put them in there um and that's why i say it's like a living breathing document it'll change all the time but essentially that you know is our trauma timeline now i know my penmanship is terrible and that's pretty simple but that's that's what it is and we'll just slowly fill it in as much as we possibly can little by little okay There's a comment that said, yes, this would be so helpful. Also, any suggestions for someone that doesn't remember most of their childhood and doesn't have anyone to ask about it? Yes. um, Just like I said, put down the things that you can remember, little chunks, um, things that like clothing you wore, like friends you have, schools you went to. Even if they're just stories that you've been told, do you have like a rough idea of when they happen, like within a year or two of your life? Plop those in there. Again, you'll be surprised how having those little markers from other people and things that, you know, little bits that we remember, how often that triggers other memories. So we'll just start there and see where we go from there. Okay. Now, another person said, double yes. I remember very little about my trauma. How can I do a timeline and also have no one to ask? I don't have a therapist. Should you attempt to do a timeline on your own? You can, like anything, My only reservation about doing things on your own is I don't want you to become re traumatized by trying to access this information. So always check in with yourself. If it's becoming overwhelming, if you find your life becoming unmanageable because you're trying to do this, like all these trauma symptoms are just ramping up. We are having trouble focusing. We're hyper vigilant and jumpy. Like, are we having, are there side effects to the work that we're doing? Because if the answer is yes, there are and we shouldn't be doing it on our own because essentially we don't have enough tools or self-regulation techniques to get us through. And that means that we probably should do it with a therapist, but just at face value, doing a trauma timeline on your own isn't harmful. It's not something that I would say you could never do on your own, but, um, it's best with a therapist because they can help fill things in and ask the questions that maybe we wouldn't think to ask ourselves, but we can definitely work on it on our own. And I also talk about this a lot in my book, Traumatized, How to Do These and Things. So if you're looking for a little extra support or insight, you can pick up a copy at your local library or purchase one online. Okay, let's move on to question number five. This question says, hello, hello. How do I get out of a freeze response if grounding techniques don't work? I've been sexually abused as a child and sexually assaulted once as a teenager. And that's when it started. I want to process what I've been through, but it's hard since I'm stuck in that freeze response and I don't know how to get out of it. I've tried to ground myself, but it just doesn't work. I need your help. Thank you so much for listening to our worries, Katie. Of course, of course. I think sometimes we think grounding techniques have to look and feel one kind of way, but I'm here. I'm going to offer some extras like I talked about the counting colors and the the ABCs, silly putty fidget toys. We can do other things. Hop in a cold shower. Yeah, sounds terrible, I know. But it is jarring to our system and can help bring us back. Splash cold water in our face. Like changing the temperature of your body is incredibly grounding. So those are some things that we can do that I don't talk about that much. Stomp your feet. Full body shakes. Essentially what we're trying to do is force our nervous system to dump that energy because freeze happens when we're in our stress response right fight flight freeze our body cues us up to take action even though we're in freeze i know you're like but i'm not taking action but it still has that energy surging in our system and we have to kind of force it out that's why stomping our feet full body shakes changing the temperature like a cold shower can be what we need to bring us back um if we don't have any history of self-injury, I you can like put rubber bands on your wrists and snap those. I don't encourage it for my patients who struggle with self-injury already because it can be triggering, but you do what's best for you. Those can be some ways that we can shake us out of freeze. Now, you're gonna have to try a bunch of different things. Think of like moving your body. Uh, that's why the jumping or stomping our feet can help too and like the full body shake. See if that helps. We're gonna have to figure out which ways because there's more than one sense that we have, right? We have to use all five senses to try to get us out of that state. Now that could be taste. We could take like a sour or spicy candy, meaning like something like a hot cinnamon candy or something sour, like a double sour patch kids or a warhead, something like that. That can help smell. Um, Things like citrus, bergamot, uh, I think even eucalyptus can be really grounding. things that are jarring, you know, that's why, um, even smelling salts, if if you really get desperate has helped a couple of my patients. Um, so there's those. Then, so we did taste, smell, touch would be that stomp, that shake. We'd need to physically do something or the cold, like changing the cold water on our face or taking a cold shower. Um, you know, we need to find some way to use our senses to bring us back. Now, sight is something that I haven't had much success in with my patients, but if anybody has any tips about that, you can leave them in the comments down below. Um, but yeah, so what do we do? We did taste and smell, touch, um, sight and sound it could be anything like it could be loud, rowdy music could be really soothing music. It kind of depends on what you're needing. Again, sound and sight haven't been as effective in my experience, but that doesn't mean it can't be effective for you. So trying different music, trying, you know, uh, quiet noises, loud noises, things like that. A A spa music could be helpful, whatever it is. We need to pull ourselves out. And it might be the opposite of what you think. Like I said, we think of like, uh, calming things to be grounding, but I'm talking about like jumping, stomping. You know, we, it could be some of those loud, more aggressive things that just jar us and pull us back. Um, so yeah, give those things a try because we need to maybe find some not that common or not as traditional grounding techniques. Now there was a comment on this says moreover, is there maybe a list of possible emotion regulation tools, or could you name a few other than breathing exercises? Now, emotion regulation... Breathing exercises really aren't emotion regulation. I know that sounds silly, but when it comes to DBT, I think what a lot of people forget is that mindfulness is this huge pillar that we go through at the beginning of any DBT work. And that essentially allows us to get in our bodies, be be more um, able to recognize our upsets and our stressors so that we can then decide what it is that we need to do when it comes to like emotion regulation. And the biggest emotion regulation skills, you're not going to like this, but It's that HALT or ABCs, please. So when it comes to DBT, HALT stands for hungry, angry, lonely, tired. And the ABCs, please, I'm going to forget them, but it's in my book, Traumatized. Um, It's essentially taking care of your, your basic needs. So the A stands for like accumulating positive emotions. B is building mastery. So doing something that you enjoy and getting better at it. C is like coping ahead, you know, rehearsing a plan ahead of time so that we are prepared and we don't feel overwhelmed. And then the please is like treating physical illness, eating, balanced eating, avoiding mood swings, um, avoiding mood altering substances. We need to get good sleep and exercise. So just those basic needs make us less vulnerable to our emotional responses and will help us regulate the best that we can. And so those are the things that I always encourage people to do first. I know you might think, but Katie, that's not in the moment. You will be surprised if we're eating balanced meals every three to four hours. We're getting, we're in bed and trying to sleep to get enough sleep. Like seven and a half hours is the bare minimum. We're drinking enough water. We're taking our medication as prescribed. We're, you know, doing things that we enjoy or that we used to enjoy, and we're trying to get better at them. All of those things are going to be incredibly beneficial in helping us regulate our emotions. Because when we're not taking care of our basic needs, we're more vulnerable to them. And so that those are really the emotion regulation skills and tools that I would focus on. And again, I talk about it in my book, Traumatized. Also, you can just get online and search um, ABCs, please, or emotion regulation tools and look them up. But those are the ones that I would do first. Okay? Another comment says, I have trouble using grounding as well and would also like some input on how to deal with the situation. I am trans and I have a sensory processing, processing disorder. And those two things are two things that make me dissociate. I dissociate from overwhelming sensations and from my body as it distresses me. However, grounding techni- techniques usually try to make you get into your body and more aware of your sensations and easily backfires. Katie, do you have any tips on how to adapt for that? Yes, yes like I said, yours might not be about getting into your body. It might be about jarring like that cold water. I don't know if the sensations on your skin, because you said sensory processing. So I don't know if cold water, even though it's jarring and can bring you back, would also cause you to dissociate. But when it comes to grounding for you, then visual might be more like the counting colors and the, the ABCs, those things might be more helpful instead of, or maybe the auditory ones. Like I said, I couldn't come up with very many of those, but maybe spa sounds or, or jarring music could do it for you because those aren't things that have to do with our senses in our body, right? That's like, I mean, I know it's our sense, but I'm saying it's not like a physical, like on our skin, like a, a shakeout or anything. I don't know if using your hands is going to be triggering, but that's why like the silly putty or the fidget toys, but you could do like scent taste and sight would be a little bit more external of the senses. And so spicy candies, um, like I said, bergamot, uh, some citrus, or maybe eucalyptus, like a rollerball of some kind of uh, essential oil. You can get those on Amazon or at any, you know, probably health food store kind of thing, like a wellness place. Um, Those might be the ways that we could do that for you. And that just kind of keeps it out of your body so that it's not triggering. Okay. Now, Someone else said, to add on, Katie, how do you know if looking up in the context, I don't know if you guys have heard of this, but we'll get into it, in the context of helping or stopping dissociation is scientifically proven or is it something that my therapist made up for a placebo effect or something? I have tried to find the research to support this and they say that it exists. So I'll believe them, but I haven't seen it and I've looked and I've tried to search using terms and I've been unable to find it. If you can find it, put the link in the comments or um, let us know. Because there's a person I saw on TikTok. This is like probably a year ago now, but he's not a therapist. He's a like a life coachy type guy. I think he's just like a motivational speaker kind of person. He claims that if you look up, like your eyes, like look up, that it triggers a certain part of your brain and it helps improve your mood. Now, I've tried to do it myself to see if there's any improvement. I have not found it. But that doesn't mean it doesn't work for anybody. And so I never want to knock something. If it helps one person, it's totally worth it. I don't know of the neuroscience behind it. And I can reach out to my buddy, Ben, Dr. Ben Rain. Um, he's uh, a neuroscientist. He would probably know. But again, I've done, I tried to look up on PubMed and Google Scholar found nothing. So I don't know if it really is helpful, but if it helps you keep doing it. I couldn't find the neuroscience behind it. Okay. Now, another question says, adding to that, what if I'm not comfortable with what I feel and it's so overwhelming, which wants makes me want to stay in that freeze response. But at the same time, I just feel like it's a waste of my time to stay in it doing absolutely nothing about what I'm suffering from. It's a more comfortable space to be in, but the guilt and shame of choosing to stay there is killing me. Okay. I get it. There's a reason we freeze, right? It is overwhelming. We don't know what else to do with it. So we do that. What that tells me is that we don't have anything, we don't have any resources to cope with what's happening. And therefore we prefer to stay in freeze. Does that make sense? So if we actually jog ourselves out of it, pull ourselves out of freeze, we're immediately overwhelmed. We want to go back. So I think we're going to need to come up with some better coping skills. Now, is that journaling? Is that talking to a therapist? Is that reaching out to a friend? Is that collaging? Is that music? Is it going for a walk? Is it petting an animal? what is it? Because right now, whatever we have isn't working or we're not using it. So I encourage you to try things. So if you pull your, if you're able to pull yourself out of that freeze response, which it sounds like you are, then I need you to try to use some tools. Yes, it's going to be uncomfortable. Don't expect life to always be comfortable. I know this is like kind of tough love, Katie. Life is fucking uncomfortable from time to time, but we have to be able to hang in there and make it better. Otherwise, we just aren't participating. Then you're in your freeze response and memories are like half there. We can feel like we're like watching ourselves do something. We're not actively participating. Now, I'm not saying that to shame or blame you. I'm just saying that we're going to have to weather that discomfort a little bit and use those tools so that we can stay present so that we don't have to be in our freeze response all the time. Because as much as I know people will say, oh, but it's like easier to do that. I know, like you said, it's not that comfortable. Like we're disconnected. It sucks. Like my friend Dodie, who still struggles with, you know, dissociation always talks, has always told me and talks even online about how much she fucking hates it because it feels out of control. And then she feels like she's not really present. And then she's doing things and engaging with friends and like doing her job, which is to like sing beautiful songs to people. And she's like, I don't even remember it really. It's like splotchy. And that sucks. And long-term dissociation fucking sucks, but it saves us in the moment it serves its purpose, but we have to be able to handle that discomfort. Let's say, try 30 seconds then push it to like a minute and a half, you know, and keep building that muscle as we utilize other tools and skills. Now I have, again, that 25 coping skills, Katie Morton video, you can look it up, go through some of those process-based, also distractions. I find when we're coming out of freeze and we feel overwhelmed, distraction-based coping skills are going to be the most helpful up after that once we feel like we've taken the edge off then we can try some process based ones but the distraction based coping skills things like going for a walk painting our nails organizing a part of our home um i don't know doing repetitive tasks folding laundry vacuuming you know walking things like that those are helpful first because it, t- it brings us down from that like you know, our window of tolerance, if we're already being pushed out of it and into freeze, it pulls us down into the space where we feel a little bit more okay, more able to to stay present. And so if we can hang in there, we can use our distractions to bring us down, then we can try processing. If we go right into trying to process something like journaling or talking to a therapist, boom, we could shoot just right back into that freeze state because it's too overwhelming, right? We need some of that time to like distract calm down, get into that. You know, maybe it's just like doing a body shake. Maybe we take a cold shower. We do any of those things, pulls us out and we can just hang in that for a little while, distract, calm our nervous system down and then try something. Does that make sense? I hope so. Okay. Let's move on to question number six. This question says, Hey Katie, my question is, how can you tell the difference between an anxiety disorder and something like complex PTSD? What symptoms would you look out for to differentiate the two? I definitely have social anxiety and have had this since childhood, but I've also experienced childhood trauma, abandonment, neglect. My therapist has mentioned anxiety many times in session and attachment trauma, but has never mentioned any other diagnoses, and I'm curious about whether or not he thinks I have anxiety. I'm too scared to ask him because I'm afraid of feeling invalidated and triggered. I become emotionally triggered and dysregulated so frequently and intensely that I really want to be able to put a name to whatever it is I'm struggling with. Many things. Okay, so I have a couple thoughts about that therapy type stuff. But let's get into the first question. The difference between anxiety disorder and something like complex PTSD. Now, that on edge feeling, the hypervigilance would be a shared symptom. In anxiety, we can feel very on edge and very jumpy because we're queued up. Right. Because anxiety is like that uncontrollable worry. We can think that something's gonna happen or someone's judging. It depends on if we have social anxiety or generalized anxiety. But let's say it's social anxiety like this person, we're always worrying what people are thinking about us. And if we're and we think we're gonna we're doing something or going to do something that's embarrassing and won't be able to get out of that situation. And it just builds and builds and builds until we just want to run away or we have a panic attack. Now, that hypervigilance or that on edge, that cued up feeling is going to be a shared symptom between complex PTSD and anxiety disorders. However, when it comes to trauma, we are going to, um, I guess I could see how this could overlap too, but the biggest thing with trauma is I'm always like, you avoid the thing that's traumatizing. But When it comes to anxiety, we avoid anything that triggers our anxiety. I guess here's the kicker. Here's the question. Are we avoiding something Because we're worried about what might happen? Or are we avoiding something because we're sure it's going to be hurtful and we can't even imagine, can't even stay regulated? We will dissociate. What is it? Now, I know that's kind of hard to tease out. But I guess the way that I would differentiate an anxiety disorder is that it's uncontrollable worry. And PTSD is avoiding things that remind us of the trauma. So we'd have to figure out what the trauma was. Like for you, you said it's abandonment, and neglect. So I would argue that your PTSD would be triggered when you feel like people might leave you or you feel like people maybe aren't as responsive, right? That could be a trigger. Or if someone's just busy, right? Um, or maybe we could even be a, a people pleaser, like the fawning thing. We could think that, if we're, that we're always upsetting people right? But anxiety, social anxiety, be worried that I'm going to embarrass myself or that someone's thinking poorly of me. It's a little different. And I know it seems really nuanced and it can be difficult to tease out, but that's how I would tease them out. Again, the PTSD is related to the trauma itself, which is neglect and abandonment. And the social anxiety is about uncontrollable worry that we're going to do something embarrassing. Someone's going to think poorly of us, right? It's more that that type. And that's why we have to again, see a therapist like you are. And I want to dig into the fact that he's never mentioned any other diagnoses and you're curious what he th- if he thinks you have anxiety. It is, it's going to be important that you bring this up with him in the way that you brought it up with me. Say, I'm afraid that I'm going to be invalidated and triggered because I feel like I have social anxiety, but I've never heard you say that you think that. And I don't know if I have a diagnosis of that. And I'm scared to ask, tell him exactly, say it exactly like you said it to me let them know that you're worried about that because therapy, especially diagnosing in therapy, it's important that you have their expertise, but it's equally important that you have your experience, right? I've talked about that for years. Like it's with my expertise and your experience, we work together, right? That's what therapy is about because it's your diagnosis. As a therapist, I don't just give you a diagnosis. And even if you don't agree with it, I'm like, yep, 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 yep. No, it's a conversation. I want to talk through the symptoms. I want to tease out, like I said, like what, how's your anxiety disorder showing up for you? And how's your PTSD showing up for you? And, and are they separate or are they together? Because sometimes one can lead to the other and a, and a therapist or psychologist, psychiatrist might not give you both diagnoses. They might be like, has PTSD, has anxiety associated with trauma. And they wouldn't think it's a completely separate diagnosis because maybe we don't meet all that criteria. But we need to be able to go through these symptoms and the criteria that we're looking at to better decide what fits and what doesn't. And just because we don't have a diagnosis doesn't mean we don't have symptoms of it. I'm gonna say that again. Just because we don't have a diagnosis, Doesn't mean that we don't have symptoms of it. So the symptoms are still very valid, and how we feel about it is still very valid. We just need to talk it out and figure out where those symptoms fall, what diagnoses our therapist thinks fit for us, whether we agree or disagree. And that's really important when it comes to therapy and treatment as a whole. We need to be able to tell them what we're thinking and feeling, get their feedback, and feel like we're being diagnosed properly and treated properly, right? So yeah. And I'm sorry I don't have like a clear distinction. I'd have to know because when it comes to teasing out, especially when it comes to trauma, when it comes to teasing out other diagnoses from it, I like to have specific examples from my time with my patient. So let's say we think they have social anxiety and trauma, I would say and PTSD. I would say something effective, remember when you tried to go out to that work event and you were so worried that people were talking about you and you started to feel embarrassed, your face got red. And hot and you had to go in the bathroom and then you had to leave. You started feeling sick. I'd be like, that's social anxiety, right? And I'd be like, remember when you um, all of a sudden dissociated because that person was wearing that cologne that reminded, you know, that those would be two different distinct situations. And I could talk it through and help explain to them why I believe they have both diagnoses. Does that make sense? And so because I don't have those kinds of experiences to pull from, I can't see which symptoms you line up with. And also- is last and I know this is kind of goes without saying but the DSM or the ICD those are just some diagnostic they're just symptom lists and I they're not the end all be all and again just because we don't meet uh the criteria doesn't mean we don't have the symptoms and it doesn't mean our feelings aren't valid and I think we will in the future see a, treatments moving away from actually like using the DSM and ICD-11 other than for insurance purposes, because it it is so limiting and it's so restrictive and not everybody fits exactly in things because we're all different, right? So just my thoughts. Okay. Now there was a comment on this that as a side note, why does social anxiety happen? I also have the disorder and probably experience emotional neglect too. Is there a correlation? It could be there could be a correlation, but social anxiety occurs. To be honest, I believe much of anxiety is born out of a difficulty with our own self-confidence and feeling like we belong in the world. You can see how that could tie to childhood emotional neglect, right? We don't ever feel like we belong. And belonging and connection are so important to us as humans, like we're wired for it. It's part of our, just our makeup, that we're going to need connection with other people. And so, because we've never felt like we belonged or we've never felt accepted or we have maybe we were bullied, right? And that's part of our uh, trauma. We can start to struggle to be in social situations and assume that people are always um, laughing about us. We're worried we're going to do something embarrassing. This, it's again, anxiety is all about worry. So, we're have uncontrollable worry about what people are thinking about us and us embarrassing ourselves and not being able to get out of the situation. And that's really that build, it starts to build within our system. And that's that's what causes social anxiety to happen. But when it comes to the root, if you're talking about the root of it, emotional neglect could be the root. Um, it could be, like I said, lack of self-confidence. Maybe we've, you know, just struggled in our life feeling like we belong, not, not for any reason of our parents, but maybe just in school or at work, we just always feel like we're kind of misunderstood. Um, It could be, something that, you know, maybe we started off as shy and shy is different than anxiety. Shy is like more of a personality trait, Um, but it could have started off as that and built into something more. Um, It could be feeling like we need a sense of control because other parts of our life were out of control. And so it can start to build in that worry of like, oh my God, something bad's going to happen. Social anxiety, I'm sure can occur for a lot of different reasons, but one could be emotional neglect and abuse. Um, Yeah, definitely. Also, I know people who have an addiction in their family are more primed for depression or anxiety. Um, Also, people who have untreated burnout can lead to anxiety symptoms. So again, there's a lot of different things. I mean, there's genetic components to it. There's a component, a certain portion of our brain they know is linked to depression, anxiety symptoms. So there's a lot of different reasons that could occur for us, but one could definitely be trauma or emotional neglect because we don't feel like we belong in the world, right? we maybe don't feel understood or like part of the group. And that can make it harder for us to like assimilate or to become part of a group. Does that make sense? I hope so. Question number seven says, Hey Katie, I was abandoned by my therapist back in November. I'm so sorry. Everything had seemed good. I had been with her for a year and a half and I went into crisis and I hospitalized myself at which point she completely cut off contact. That's not ethically okay. Okay. I've struggled ever since I've tried working with seven different therapists in the past nine months or so, but I cannot get myself to trust them. So I'm unable to open up and I end up quitting. I still think about this abandonment pretty much every day, and sometimes it hurts much more than others. How do I learn to trust again? To feel secure enough that I won't that I will be able to open up again. And why is there such a stigma around therapist abandonment and abuse? I've searched all over for videos, articles, books on the subject, but it feels like it's just a taboo subject that nobody wants to admit happens. Help. First of all, I'm so sorry that this happened to you. It is unethical and technically it's, it's called patient abandonment and you could file a claim against their license. Um, they have to give you referrals and give you time like a month or or three roughly for you to find someone else. At least a month is usually what the like bare minimum is. So, uh, um, okay. Getting yourself to trust again, give yourself time. And part of me feels like instead of feeling like you need to open up right away to these new therapists, I want you instead to talk about the fact that you were abandoned and that it was difficult and process this. So often we feel like, oh, I need to jump back into what I was working on. But I'm like, no, you just had another trauma. Something else terrible happened. And we need to talk about that first. And so I encourage you to bring that up first and to navigate the healing process, because essentially what's, what you're going through is a grieving process because you lost someone that you trusted who was part of your team, who you felt you 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 know, you'd connected with and you'd shared things with. And I don't know about your past, but we could have some attachment or abandonment issues already. So it's like exacerbated that. We need to grieve. We need to talk about it. We need to feel supported by a different therapist. I know it's hard, but that's what I would open up about first. do Don't We don't need to worry about the other stuff. We're just going to talk about this, the patient abandonment. Um, then... <sighs> I'd encourage you to even on your own, do some personal work where you kind of journal about the things. I'd encourage you to instead of focusing on the fact that they abandoned you and, and that part of it, focus on the work that you were doing together, the things that you accomplished and the things that you still want to accomplish. Because what I want you to be aware of when you try to find a new therapist is I still want you to be placed well with someone who can help you with the things that you're still needing help with. Yes, I know we just added, you know, therapist abandonment to our list of things to process, but there's still other things that there was a whole other group of things you were going to work on before this happened. I don't want you to lose sight of that or forget where you were going with it. Um. Yeah, that that's really. I'm trying to look if there's a question. So the question's really, how do I learn to trust again? Slowly. That's why we have to find someone who can help us on the things with the things we really want to work on, and then we need to talk to them about this. We can process this, and even talking through that, that abandonment at the beginning is going to tell us whether or not they can hang with us through the rest, okay? And I encourage you, instead of just quitting and stopping seeing them, take a beat and consider what's triggered you what, else, what are we maybe feeling? Can we journal about that first? Because it sounds like you're being very impulsive and very reactive, probably because our abandonment and attachment issues were triggered. And can we do anything to soothe our system? Again, my 25 coping skills video will come in handy here. Can we use some of those to manage to get us through? Because I think, again, we're we're being more impulsive than, than we maybe needed to be, or maybe we should be, right? We We need to try to instead of just allowing these impulses and these like sabotaging behaviors to run our life, we need to tap in and try to recognize where they're coming from, so it doesn't keep happening. Does that make sense? I hope so. Okay. Um, And why is there such a stigma? I think within the therapy, I'm just going to be completely honest with you guys. I think within the therapist community, if a therapist abandons a patient, uh, the new therapist or whoever's brought onto the scene always wonders why, because there's kind of this like unwritten, not even a rule, but it's like a non-communicated thing where you're like, well, if another therapist bounced, what happened? And we may assume that you are constantly threatening suicide. Could be kind of BPD related. A lot of people are afraid of taking on a borderline patient. I personally work with them a lot. I don't have the same, you know, reaction that a lot of, Uh, mental health professionals do, but it's there. I think a lot of people assume there's something like that, some attachment, difficulty with boundaries, suicide attempts, and that can scare people. Because the thing that I think, you know, people who aren't therapists or mental health professionals don't realize is that suicidality can be very scary for people who don't know how to manage it. And we can lose our licenses. So if you attempt, and we didn't do all the things we're supposed to do, like check all these boxes, or there's no proof that we did, right? Like, we didn't put it in our notes, uh, you know. There's no record of calls. I guess I don't know. But if there's not enough proof, then we can lose our license. And so some people get very scared about putting that on the line. Not to mention, it can be very jarring to our personal life because if you're constantly in crisis, then it means you're calling or texting us a lot, and that can, if we don't have healthy boundaries, it can, you know, invade our regular life. I think that's why it's it's stigmatized. But I encourage, that's why I encourage you when you try to see a new therapist to let them know exactly what happened, because a lot of people will otherwise make assumptions that might not be good or truthful. And I wish more people talk about it because therapists can like refer us out, not necessarily abandon us, but refer us out or not be able to treat us for many reasons. One of the main ones for me is usually when I think someone needs a higher level of care, but they refuse to go. And then I can't continue seeing them ethically. And that happens with my eating disorder patients, with my BPD patients, because they're too reactive and they need more support than I can offer. And I've gotten pushback over the years where people are like, I do not want to go. And I'm like, but I can't keep, you're not, we're getting worse. You know? Um, so there can be that pushback or if it's just outside of my scope of practice, right? Like I don't treat addiction in my practice. That's not my specialty and I have great re- like referrals for that. But some people don't want to be referred out and can get very aggressive. I've had patients get mad and yell and, you know, scream at me because I'm referring them out. And then that's scary for me and then it's like, well, no, I can't see you either because it makes me scared to have you in my office. Um anyways, that's why it's important that you communicate what happened. The the situation with your past therapist, how it'd been all fine. And then you went into crisis and you took yourself to the hospital, keep yourself safe. And then they didn't see you anymore. And I think that honesty around the situation will help a therapist see it clearly, understand the situation, help you process it through and then support you. You might want to find someone who's attachment based because that might be helpful too, especially navigating this reopening up. I find attachment based therapists to be really helpful with that. Um, Yeah. Anyway, those are just my thoughts. I hope that that helps a little bit. Okay. Now there was a comment on this says, Hey Katie, I have another ethics question for you. I've been in therapy for years and about a year ago, my therapist disclosed that their child saw my mom professionally. Hmm. I wasn't told until months later, but I'm now realizing it's been harder to dig into my childhood and just talk about my mom hardships currently but haven't really done the inner child work. And I'm wondering if this is a conflict of interest for context. My mom is a very uniquely skilled person in her practice. And our town is only about 70 ish thousand people. What should the next steps be? Should I find a new therapist and dwindle down sessions with her or continue? It's really up to you because your mom is so uniquely skilled. It's very likely that they won't be able to find whatever she does, uh, It's it's very likely that your therapist won't be able to find someone for their child to see. Now, the reason they disclosed it is because technically and ethically they're supposed to, because it's a potential dual relationship. Now, and also like if you happen to be at your mom's office, I mean, I don't know what the situation is, but and saw them come in, that would be uncomfortable for you. And, you know, it just it's so that we can kind of mitigate that. We're supposed to talk about it, figure it out. I don't know if you've talked with your therapist about your thoughts on this, but I would let them know. And if you find it getting in the way of your of you being able to do the work that you need to do, then for your own best interest, I would encourage you to find someone else. Does it suck? Yes. Is it fair? No. But I don't want you to be impeded by the fact that you know, your therapist child is seeing your mom. I don't want that to get in the way of you being able to do the work that you need to do. I do want to let you know that, I I would assume she's a good therapist and you've liked her. It's not going to change her ability to work with you. She Seeing you and seeing your mom in totally different, it, they're not related. And good therapists are able to compartmentalize and kind of cut off things from each other. That's like the, the reason that I've been able to see friends for years and neither of them knows that i'm seeing the other unless they shared it amongst themselves but i never let on about anything and very you know very good about never sharing any information with the other but you know it can be tricky for the patient to know that that you're you know that your therapist is seeing your mom in another context and if that's again getting in the way of you doing your therapeutic work then by all means i encourage you to you know dwindle down sessions with her get some referrals and see someone else but i do encourage you to tell her why let her know that this is getting in the way. And and she might have, you know, good explanation as to why it shouldn't affect it, or she might support your decision and give you some good referrals, you know, but it's up to you and whether whether or not you think it's getting in the way of your treatment. Okay. Final question. Question number eight says, Hey Katie, this is my question. How do you deal with a sick or dying abusive parent? Ooh, tricky. I started grieving a few years ago when I realized my father won't change. He said, He was always like this and he's too old to change. But seeing him sick now makes me sad. And at the same time, I feel relief because he's too weak to say cruel things or be violent towards me. Recently, he sent a farewell text to me and my sisters. And I don't know what to do because even if he is sick or healthy, I still don't trust him. I wouldn't either. I feel awkward when he's trying to be grateful or polite. I feel like it's a trap. And I'm scared that if he fully recovers, he may want revenge or to be abusive again. How can I navigate this? Thank you. Great question. Okay. When we have a parent who's been abusive, maybe it's because, you know, they're physically, sexually, or emotionally abusive. Maybe they're a narcissist, um, but they've done things to harm us in the past. And now they're sick and dying and they can start to feel alone. I find especially parents who've been super abusive throughout their lives are very isolated. They usually don't have very many good relationships because they're not really capable, Right. And so I want you to reflect on what would be best for you. Remove as much as you are able, which I know this is difficult, remove what your father thinks from your brain for a second. And I want you to consider the best moves for you personally. Meaning, do you think that you're going to regret not seeing him before he dies? Are you going to regret seeing him? Because then he could say an abusive thing and it's going to be detrimental and we're going to fall into that spiral again, right? Really think it through and take some time. I encourage you as much as possible, remove any guilt or shame that your father used to try to throw at you. Like you're so ungrateful, you're such a bad blah, blah, blah. Like take that out of the equation because that doesn't fucking matter. I don't care what your dad thinks or feels. I only care what you think and feel. So consider that for a minute, what's best for you. No one can tell you what the right thing is to do. I encourage you not to listen to your siblings even because this is a you thing. What would be best for you in the long run? Only you know that answer. And your siblings and you will do totally different things because you're totally different people. I'm sure some of them are like, I'm never going to see him again. They've cut him out completely and they're fine with it. And that's fine. And that might be what you want to do or it might not. But I want you to feel free to act in a way that is is best for you emotionally. And I can't answer, you know, that's the best answer I can give you. I am always very nervous to have my patients make themselves available to more cruelty. So, wanting to see him or talk to him or reach out or do any of those things, I want it to be done with the utmost care and planning. So, putting together safety plans. And if things do start to derail, I want you to be able to get out of there immediately without any shame, blame, or guilt. Be like, well, it looks like you're the same person you used to be and you just leave, right? Um, Or if it's a call, you hang up. And I know that can sound rude, but I want you, if we're going to engage, I want you to feel free to withdraw if it's not healthy for you. And that's the tricky part because we can find ourselves falling into old patterns. And so I probably wouldn't text back. I do not like text when it comes to difficult relationships and conversations, can be so manipulative. We also don't get inflection. Things can be missed or misinterpreted. Also allows them just to send a barrage of shitty things if they feel feel so inclined. Um, If you feel, if you want, you can block them on text so you don't get those things, but consider what's going to be best for you. I don't want you thinking about revenge or being abusive. Again, as long as you're able to live on your own, again, always consider your safety. And those are just the things that I would think about. That's the way I would navigate it. Yes, this is going to be when your father does pass, it's going to be a complicated loss because we've like lost him twice. You know, you, there's the grief of the father that you probably wished you'd had that he couldn't be. And there's the grief of um missing the person, you know, thinking that maybe he would at some point get better. And now, you know, for sure he won't, you know, there's a lot of grief in there and a lot of pain and it's okay to feel it. It's okay to start feeling it now and allow yourself to write letters that you don't send about the things you wish he could have said and done for you that he wasn't able and how much that sucks and how that's, you know, made it hard for you to to love him, but you love him, but you hate him. You know, it's very complicated and it's okay to feel all those things and write about those things right now. Um, and that might also help you answer your own question. And I know it sucks that I, you know, I can't tell you what to do, but that's what I would consider. Okay. There's a comment on this that said, yes, it would be awesome if Katie answers this. And as an add-on, how do I deal with my father who has narcissistic personality disorder traits and started therapy because he's deeply depressed after several narcissistic wounds? It seems rare that somebody with NPD keeps going to therapy. He seems to continue. And that's now more than a year that he's been doing it. For context, it is my therapist who told me that he has NPD traits. My father's girlfriend broke up with him during the confinement. At the same time, his colleagues uh, put him on or gave him a trial, which he won. He's upsetting everyone, but works very meticulously. Before that, I cut him out of my life too. I had to because my life was such a roller coaster and it was impossible for me to keep a job and healthy relationships in my life with him around. He He was deeply neglected as a child and only learned to talk at school. He neglected me emotionally and physically, but to a less severe degree. I have complex PTSD because of these childhood traumas, and I know I need to be careful to be able to finally construct my life. But now that I realize he's making the effort, I want to help him. I don't want to abandon him because I love my father. Okay, this is tricky. Um, You're not responsible for him. Now, I know that's hard, and he probably has made you feel somewhat responsible for his emotional state many, many, many times in your life. And it's like your role to play. You're like, oh, I can make him happy. I'll do everything just perfectly. I'll be that perfect child and everything will be okay. You're not responsible. Sure, he was neglected as a kid and had a shitty upbringing. That sucks. I feel bad for him. But that again, doesn't... The thing that's, I think, hard for people to understand, and maybe it's the therapist in me that can do this, but someone having a shitty upbringing, I can simultaneously feel bad for them and be like god that fucking sucks and then also think they're a total piece of shit because of the way they've interacted with others and the way they've treated people in their lives i can hold those two things i can be like oh that's really that's that's so sad i hate that that happened but you're still responsible for your actions i want you to consider if you can do this with your father because what i hear in your question is that you for some reason feel bad and you don't want to abandon him you feel somewhat responsible. And maybe that's the wrong word. Maybe it's just because you care about him because he's your father. And that's fine. Again, we have to do what's best for us, not for him. And so I want you to consider what's best for you because there's a reason that you cut him out of your life. Doesn't mean you have to keep him cut out, but I'm just saying there's a reason that you did it. And so I want you to think back and I want you to consider why And then consider if you really do want to bring him back in, and if so, in what capacity. We get to call the shots because the thing that's tricky and the thing that I'm a little worried about, it's great that he's getting help. That's wonderful. That is very rare, and we should celebrate that. Five gold stars to your dad. But I do worry about the manipulation factor because when someone has narcissism, even if they have symptoms of narcissism, they tend to do everything they can to manipulate an emotional response to get you to do what they want. Now, doing what they want is usually catering to them and getting their emotional needs met because if you haven't heard of it, it's like narcissists will do what's like called hoovering or they'll they kind of like suck your life force. And that's because they want you to care about them and show that emotional love and support and they want to suck it all out because they can't give it to themselves because of past trauma and their inability to really feel empathy and concern and care. They're like lacking a lot of emotional depth. And so they try to suck it out of other people. This can lead us to feeling very manipulated, very used and abused and usually emotionally neglected. Like if anybody thinks about a parent who has narcissistic tendencies, the warm, loving, supportive parent that a lot of people can relate to, we can't because we never really got that. Like you said, you know, they're emotionally and physically neglected. So anyways, I don't want to get too much into narcissism. I can see myself going on a whole tangent, but I just want you to consider, we need to kind of do what in CBT we call playing it out. I want you to play out like the best case scenario, like, Rose-colored glasses, amazing. Everything goes perfectly. That would be like, my dad is able to manage his narcissistic urges. He's not manipulative anymore. He's supportive. And inner child me finally gets the love and care that I so desperately want. Okay? Now, what's the worst case scenario? I open myself back up to it. My life gets into the shithole again. I'm up and down on a roller coaster, and my dad is hurting me more than ever before. And what's the most likely scenario? It's probably a little bit of both. Because your dad's in therapy, let's hope that there are some things that are improving. However, he's still going to manipulate you with probably without even realizing it, but maybe with realizing it, we don't know. And so we're going to have to have some kind of defenses for that. And so I'd ask your therapist about this. If you do want to maybe allow him a little bit back into your life, what would that look like? What would the boundaries be? I want you to consider this all before doing anything. We don't want to act impulsively when it comes to this. We don't want to let someone in who we previously cut off because we just forgot how bad it was. That can happen sometimes. That's almost like breaking up with a really bad girlfriend or boyfriend. And then later you're like, but I think we can make it work again. I love them so much. We forget all the toxic shit that happened between you two. And then we get back into it only to break up again. I don't want that to happen with your father. I don't want you to get back into this kind of relationship and be abused again because that's hurtful. And especially if you don't feel like you're able to weather that storm, I don't want to put you in that position. So let's consider, let's play it out. And then we can put together a plan if we feel like at that point, we want to let them back in. If not, then don't. And it might be helpful in the therapeutic sense to write a letter that we don't send saying goodbye and why you can't allow them in, why you have to protect yourself. Because again, like I said at the beginning for this first question, you have to do what's best for you. I know it's hard, especially when we grew up with a narcissistic parent, we can struggle to put ourselves first. We can always think of them first. And, oh, I was, we can make a lot of assumptions because we're used to walking on eggshells, trying not to upset them. So we're like, I'm sure that they're thinking this and they're feeling this way. And the therapist to me is like, try to not make those assumptions about them. We don't know how they feel unless they tell us. And we know through historical, if if this is true, if it is really narcissism, historically speaking, When they tell us how they feel, it's usually done as a manipulation tactic. So we might not even really know how they feel. So it's not even helpful to try to assume. It's better to just acknowledge how we feel, what we're going through, and make the best decision for us. Okay? I hope that helps. I know it's complicated. I know there's a lot of moving parts when we have, it's a parent, right? It's hard to have a parent that lets us down that much and that to cut them off and never let them back in. That can be really stressful. But if it's what's best for us, then it's what's best for us. And then we get to grieve and process that in therapy, you know, and I just want you to know it can and will get better. Okay. Thank you all so much for watching and listening. Thank you for sending in your questions. I hope you found this helpful. Um, Remember, I do ask for the questions on Sunday. So hop over to my YouTube channel on the community tab and ask them there. Please share this podcast. Please leave reviews. It really, really helps. I love you all. Take care of yourselves and I'll see you soon. Bye.